We are really blessed with a very talented praise team, are we not? We are, I am really grateful. Um, before, before I get going, I wanted to say um, this will be... This will be one of the, uh, I, won't, I won't get to see you guys uh, in, in person again for three weeks after this morning. Um, I'm doing a wedding uh, on the other side of the country next week. And the following week, I will be leading about two dozen people from here to, uh, along with a few others, to the country of Honduras for a mission trip. And so in my absence, uh, next week, Alan Calvert is going to bring the message and cover one of my favorite passages from Ephesians, Ephesians, uh, the first part of Ephesians 2. This is one of the more powerful portions of uh, living alive in Christ and death over, uh, or victory over death. And, and then the following week, our old friend Eric Fridge, whom several of you might remember, he'll be here uh, preaching the following passage after that. And so um, I'm really grateful for those two guys filling in in my absence. Um, as we continue on in this particular portion of scripture to kind of rehash what was, what was talked about from last week, or, or more so to talk about the city of Ephesus. The, the city of Ephesus is this unique place, similar to Houston. There's a lot of trade, a lot of commerce. There's, there's a port where a lot of people will meet, but they're, they're also an accomplished city. They've got this giant theater. They had one of the largest libraries in the world. They had the, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to Artemis. And so these people of Ephesus are a proud, hardworking people, and they would find it offensive for people to say, no, Artemis is no God at all, actually. There's the one true God and Jesus Christ, his son. Would have been extremely offensive. And so I think Paul is trying after this first portion that what we talked about last week, that one giant long sentence of praise and who God is, what God has done, and therefore who we are, Paul then tries to build on this talking to the people of Ephesus because they're likely getting mocked. They're likely being spat upon. They're likely being persecuted. And later on, we'll hear stories from, from historical documents, not even scripture, of just how poorly some of the people in this area of Asia was, was persecuted in the name of Jesus Christ. And so as we dive into this, we'll be, if you want to open your Bibles and read along, we'll be in Ephesians 1 starting in verse 15 is where we're going to start. Ephesians 1 verse 15 is where uh, that will begin this morning. And I think Paul is trying to build in, on a number of ways. And like we talked about, this is one of, many theologians believe this is one of the most theologically rich letters in all of the New Testament. So Paul starts off in verse 15 and 16 here. He said, Paul says this to the Ephesians, ever since I first heard of your strong faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for God's people everywhere, I have not stopped thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly. Now, I love that he starts off with this because if you're in an area where you're having a lot of pushback for who you are and what you believe and what you do, Paul's trying to start off by saying, I know this is difficult. Paul's sitting here saying, I know that you are being persecuted in a number of ways. There's a chance some of the people in that church were being killed on account of their faith. So he says, I know that you are staying strong in your faith to God and your love for people everywhere, which is powerful because what Paul's saying is, not only are you not leaving your faith, but you are loving the people who are persecuting you on account of your faith. That's pretty powerful. 
And Paul's saying, I am so grateful for this because he knows how difficult it must be in this city to be a follower of Jesus Christ, knowing you will have pushback at all times on account of this. So then Paul picks this up because Paul in this passage of scripture is going to pray for three things overall. Here's the first one, verse 17 um, from from 16. I have not stop thanking God for you. I pray for you constantly, asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you the spirit of wisdom and insight so that you might grow in your knowledge of God. Now, I think this is powerful for a number of reasons. Paul's saying, I want you to have the spirit of wisdom and insight. Now, when we think wisdom in our culture, so much of that comes back to making the right decision. And we'll pull up these case studies and, well, what if this happens, this occurs, then how should we as Christians respond? And those are good questions to ask. It's a good conversation to have. But what's fascinating here is when we talk about discernment and knowing the Spirit and the Spirit working through us, Paul's not saying so that you'll be smart, so that you'll be street smart, so that you'll be wise. What Paul is saying is, I want you to have the Spirit of wisdom so that you will know God. Which makes sense because if Paul were to say, I want you to know God, if we know God and we're wanting to do God's will, then when those decisions that come down that we need to make, don't we want what God wants? And so Paul's talking about the the value of knowing God. But before I continue on from that, we need to dissect something real quick. You see, when I was taught her, when I was uh, listening to lessons and, and classes and sermons growing up about knowing God, we typically equated that to biblical knowledge. How well do you know your Bible? Now, let me start off by saying that's not a bad thing. Knowing your Bible is an excellent tool to know God. But I think in some ways we might have swung a little too far in one direction. Just out of curiosity, who grew up at a church where you did sword drills? Anybody grew up at a sword drill church? Yeah, a few. So for those of you who don't know what a sword drill church is, a sword drill is it's as a kid, you have, you have your Bible in front of you. Um, and, and you sit down with your Bible and it's closed and someone says, uh, whoever's leading it will say, um, Acts uh, 4.12, go. And at that moment, those doing the sword drill would have to turn as quickly as they could to Acts 4.12. Whoever got there first would raise their hand and if they got called, they would quote whatever that verse was, assuming they quoted the correct scripture. You got a point, most points at the end of the game wins. Pretty simple. The idea was for you to learn and know your Bible. Then we had this thing called Google show up and we decided we didn't need that anymore. All right? So whenever we say turn to this, uh, I saw several of you just pull out your phones and type it in. Nothing wrong with that. Um, I do think there is some value in kind of knowing where to look in your Bible for certain things. Then again, Bible Gateway has helped out with that tremendously as well, right? So there are some good things about the progress. Uh, you might have also grown up at a church that, that did Bible Bowl. Anybody grow up doing Bible Bowl? Yeah. Any Bible Bowl champions out there? Yeah? You got your title belt still? Sweet. So uh, I, I grew up at, at a Bible Bowl church. We did ours kind of separately from a lot of the larger groups. But at, at its core, Bible Bowl had really good intentions. It really did. Um, the problem that I noticed that developed was it became so much about winning and knowing Bible that the idea originally was you know your Bible so that you can have an opportunity to come to know God better. And being the competitors that we are, we need to win. So we need to know the right answers so that we will get the point, so that we will win. And at the same time, while there is really good things about it, 
As a kid, I knew a lot of things about the story of David or Moses or Paul or Jesus that a lot of kids my age didn't know as a part of that. However, all those being said, while they're good things, that does not mean having those knowledge, having, being good at the sword drill and having biblical knowledge. That does not necessarily translate to knowing God. Better, better illustration might be when I was a kid uh, and, and I was, that was the late 90s, I, I developed a real passion for watching and playing basketball. Loved it. And in the late 90s, there's only one guy that everybody loves and wants to watch. It's Michael Jordan, okay? I thought Michael Jordan was just the coolest person because not only did he win championships all the time, he had this swagger about him. Those of you who watch, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like he wasn't afraid of anybody um, and, and he would talk trash to anyone. He didn't care, but he had his own style too. Like he wore a pair of basketball shorts under his actual game shorts because he said he thought they were lucky. So guess what I did when I started playing basketball? I wore two pairs of shorts. That's what Michael Jordan would do. True story, when I was, uh, when I was younger, my dad had to do a business trip to Chicago. And so he got preseason tickets to a game. I wore two Michael Jordan jerseys because I didn't know when I'd wear the other one. So I wore them both to that game. Afterwards, we went to Michael Jordan's restaurant in Chicago um, and I ordered the fast break fingers. And I thought that's what Michael Jordan would have eaten and because that's what I wanted to eat was the fast break fingers. And uh, I just, I thought that it was the coolest experience. So much so that I watched enough Jordan highlights that the following two years, anytime I made a three-pointer in one of my like eight-year-old rec league games, I would do the shrug on the way back. Like as I, I shot, I make it, and he has this iconic moment where he looks and goes like this. And so I would make my shots as an eight-year-old and look at all the parents as I walked by and go like this as I walked by, okay? I'm not, I'm not telling you it was cool, but it is what Michael Jordan would have done in that moment. And so like all of us, and if you watch videos of kids, they still have celebrations that they see pro athletes do, right? It was the same thing. Here's the deal though. Well, I thought Michael Jordan was so cool. Well, I would buzz my head every summer so I could look like Michael Jordan, given he had a shaved head. My mom wouldn't let me do that. But because of this, I tried so hard to be like him, but at the same time, at no point in my life have I ever known Michael Jordan. I've read his autobiography. I know a lot about his life. But if he were to call me up and say, hey, let's go do lunch, uh, after freaking out and calling everyone I've ever met, I would then also freak out because I'm thinking, okay, what restaurant should we go to? Should I cook for him? Will that be good enough? Uh, when we do sit down to lunch, what are we going to talk about? Other than his career, I, I'm not sure. Um, and, and all these questions run through my head because I don't know him. Whereas if you know someone that you're sitting down to a meal or time together with, you typically already have topics in mind that you want to talk about with that person. I have no idea because I don't know him. And while I can have his stats in hand, that doesn't mean that I know Michael Jordan. Just like if you know the biblical knowledge and the stats of the Bible, that doesn't mean that you know God. And so Paul is going back to this and saying, I don't want the spiritual insight so that you will be able to have this knowledge and, and teach everybody. I want that, but I want you to know God. But he doesn't stop there. He builds on it. So in verse 18... He says, for the second thing, I pray that your hearts will be flooded with light so that you can understand the confident hope he has given to those he called, his holy people who are his rich and glorious inheritance. Now, this is a big, big portion of what Paul's writing about for this reason. And if you look back at chapter 1, verse 15, 
Paul writes that I'm so grateful for your faith and your love. Now, if we skip over to 1 Corinthians 13, 13, and you read that, the famous love chapter, then you'll hear where Paul writes in verse 13, he said, now at the end of all things, there are three that remain faith, hope, and love, and the greatest is love. So to begin Ephesians, he says, I see your faith, I see your love, and now Paul's saying, I want that light to go off because I want you to have the hope. That is so, so important because while faith can be strong and love still abounds, if they're feeling pressured about their faith, if they're feeling persecuted, they have to hope or it's going to be incredibly hard to hang on to faith. Those three are interconnected in the way that Paul will write about them. And that is so, so important for them to have. You know, I I think one of the best stories ever written about hope in the secular world was a novel by Stephen King that later became an incredibly popular movie that is iconic now to this day called The Shawshank Redemption. Okay, the movie is so well done with uh, Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. And it's the story of a man who um, is, is wrongfully convicted, ends up having to do life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. And the stories that, that abound there, but I think the underlying theme of this movie is, the, is what hope can do to a human being when a system is trying to take their soul from them. Because so much of what they experience in prison life is something that's gonna steal the hope from their very life. In that a number of time, Andy and Red, the two main characters, have a number of conversations and a lot of them revolve around hope. Should we even have hope? Andy wants to hold on to hope where Red is saying, hope is a dangerous thing. Hope can be one of the worst of things. It can take the very life from you because you're hoping for something that will never actually happen. And toward the end of the movie, Andy's trying to teach Red what this looks like. So he writes him a letter and he says this, remember Red, hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things and a good thing never dies. And throughout this movie, throughout this novel, you read about the stories of various people who were in prison, some who got out and couldn't make it out on the other side, some who were afraid to get out because of what they had become used to life being, and some of them who got out because they had hope, because they looked forward to this next thing. And about five or six years ago, I realized what the conundrum with hope is. I sat in an adult Bible class that I was leading, and we were covering a passage. It was from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And in that passage, Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he said, look, I want you to be at peace about what's going to happen at the end times. I want you to know what's going to happen when the day that Christ returns. He walks him through it. But he says, the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to have hope and not lose sight of that day that is coming because of what I know you are dealing with right now. I don't want you to lose this. Peter agreed in the same way. First Peter chapter one, verses three through 11. Peter kind of says, he doesn't talk about the judgment day, but he talks about here's who God is. Here's what God has done. And therefore you have something to hope for. And as I read those passages in this Bible class that I was teaching, I asked our class, I said, um, well, before I continue, you know, in, in Bible classes, you'll always have those people who don't really like silence, like silence really intimidates them. So they'll just speak. And and it might have something to do with the question you asked. It might not, but they tend to speak, right? Because silence is a really tough thing. 
uh, to just sit there with. And, and so I asked this question. I said, uh, how do we give hope to a culture that doesn't think they need it anymore? How do we give hope to a culture who doesn't think they need it anymore? When I was in college, I, I helped a missionary friend who had lived in Honduras the last 10 years. He moved back and, and he had asked if I could help move a few things for him from uh, his home to his new office. And he was still working with this organization, but he decided he was going to do it from stateside. And, and I said, hey, so what's life been like this last year living in the States as opposed to Honduras? And he said, Casey, the, the top thing I can tell you is I've lived here over a year now and not a day has gone by that I haven't woken up and been blown away at just how easy life is here. Just how easy it is. He said, look, I, I've got bills that I'm not 100% sure how I'm going to pay. I got stuff in my house that needs work. My car needs work. Yeah, I mean, we got that stuff to work out. But, you know, even if it all fell apart, I'm surrounded by so many people with so many resources. And really, we all are here in, in Honduras the things that those people wake up with on a daily basis is, at the end of this week, am I going to have a house, a roof to put over my kid's head? Are we going to have food? Because I have no idea how I'm going to get it. And this guy was telling me, I, I don't ask that question here. Yeah, we got stuff to figure out, but overall, I know we're going to be fine. And so here we are in this generation where we're blessed, right? We're still figuring out things. We got to pay bills. We, we got to work through a number of things in our lives, but it's one of these, do we really need hope if life is already kind of at a level place? And while I'm not thankful for what happened in March of 2020, um, I, I do think one of the silver linings was that we learned a little bit, got a little taste of what it meant to hope in a way. And regardless of where you were at in that, if you didn't think COVID, if you thought COVID was like going to be a planet killer, or if you thought COVID just was not a big deal at all, either way, you hoped that that stage was going to be over with. I don't know of anyone who's like, this is great. I love it. I, you know, everyone was miserable. Whether it be you were concerned that you were going to contract COVID or if you were just sick and tired of being stuck at home and isolated, we hoped that that stage would be over, at least more under control. And all of a sudden we learned to hope in a bigger, bigger way. And we got a little taste of what that might look like. The Ephesians might die every time they leave their home that day, knowing that because of their faith, that might happen. So hope is essential in that place. And finally, verse 19, the final thing that Paul prays for, he said, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. Now, at this point, Paul is talking about the resurrecting power, saying if you know God, if you, know, if you have the spirit of wisdom, if you understand who God is, and if you have that hope, then you will experience the resurrecting power that lies within God that he performed through Jesus Christ that we have via the Holy Spirit. So if you understand these three things, then you'll understand verses 21 through 23 of Ephesians 1, where many theologians argue that this is kind of Paul's thesis. Like we talked about, it's one of the most theologically rich books of the entire New Testament. So if Paul were, if this were a dissertation, 21 through 23 would be the thesis statement. He says this, now, 
he, as in Jesus, is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. And Paul, I think, is saying, if you understand who God is, then it becomes a lot easier to understand. It's kind of like this with, with teachers. I've heard so many teachers say this, regardless of what level of education, is that one of their favorite things about teaching is what we call the light bulb moment. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? The light bulb moment where you, you have this thought, this epiphany of something of, of you're, you're struggling to understand a concept and, and then you just have something where, where it clicks. And uh, I, I'm, I'm watching it with my kids in that, you know, a kid will tend to go from, they, they learn their letters and they're learning their consonants and vowel sounds. But when it comes to actually reading and stringing those letters together to make the right sound, it, something just has to click, right? When I was in eighth grade, uh, I was taking Algebra 1 and our teacher had this thing where whenever we showed her individually that like there was a concept that we were struggling with and we finally got it like she would jump up and down and clap, like go crazy. And, and it was because she would say, once I see that you get it, my job as a teacher just became exponentially easier. Because once you have these concepts, you just plug them in and you understand how this goes. This light bulb moment of, oh, that's what was taking place. You know, in a lot of ways we refer to this kind of like uh, riding a bike. Once you learn how to ride a bike, you don't really unlearn it, right? You, and it takes a while. You have to fall down several times. But once you get it, you don't really forget how to ride a bike. Um, now, that being said, for many of us, bikes are becoming obsolete. And so because bikes are becoming obsolete, there's other things that have come out since then. Um, and this is called a hoverboard, which I don't think is aptly named because you don't hover. You just roll. And I, I want to talk about this. Um, so the, it, it's always hard when you ride a bike. And many of us learn at a young age. And a lot of kids aren't learning to ride bikes anymore. One, because of traffic, but also because that's way less work. <laughs> I will tell you that. It's way less work to ride that thing. But about two years ago, I was working in uh, San Antonio at a church there. And the guy who does our building maintenance, his grandsons would come in oftentimes and, and talk and hang out. And they came in about a week after Christmas, and uh, their two oldest boys, Derek and Theo, for Christmas had gotten hoverboards. Now, I had never been on one before, and they were like, Mr. Casey, you've got to try it. You've got to check it out. And I'm like, sure, I've always wondered what they'd be like, so why not? And I hop on. Now, I don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea how the thing works. So I hop on and immediately go straight into a wall and crash and fall. They had pulled out, I think, their mom's phone and filmed it. Um, they then claimed that they put it on the internet. They didn't. Um, and then they told me the next day, hey, your, your video of you crashing into the wall has 29,000 views. And I'm like, there's no way that's true. Because <laughs> uh, Derek and Theo at that point are like nine and six at that point. I'm like, there's no way. So uh, come to find out they had watched it uh, not 29,000, but 290 times on their parents' phone and thought that that was other people viewing this. It turns out it was just them. So my secret is safe. 
Now, which was crazy to me because I didn't think it was that cool of a video because, yes, I did fall, but it wasn't like I, you know, went off the stage and did a backflip gainer and landed on my teeth. Like, I just kind of bumped, caught myself, and fell down. I'm like, that's 29,000 views. I should not be a celebrity for such a, you know, not that great of a video. But anyway, after I fall, um, I get up and I'm like, I'm good. I'm not doing that again. My wife does not even try to do it, by the way. And, and then afterwards, though, our youth minister walked in. Now, our youth minister was like six foot four, uh, 260, 270. And, um, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, okay, it's the bigger you are, the harder those things are, right? Physics. And, but he gets on it immediately and starts riding it. And I'm like, okay, I have better balance than you. I am smaller than you. How in the world did you do that? And I'm, I'm getting a little jelly, all right? And, and he told me the secret. He said, look, riding it, not that hard. Getting on is the hardest part. The bigger you are on these things. Now, they have bigger ones, but I am... Um, I didn't want to spend the money because I don't care enough. Yeah. And so my kids got one though, and this was my son's. He told me that I could borrow it for today. Now, I know everyone, you, if you want to pray, this would be the time. So um, I like getting on, if you notice, like I need to hold on to stuff in order to move. And it's harder to really go around a whole lot with this. Um, I do hope that I develop the nickname of hoverboard preacher before the morning's over. So um, but with that, it was hard. But once I discovered that the best way to go about being on this thing and to get around is to grab onto something and then get on and off, because yeah, if you lean one way, it'll spin real quick. And the reason that I, I mention this is now that I know how to get on, going around can be tough. I mean, there's a little dent right here, and I did feel, fall earlier this morning, so I'm not going past it. But once you learn how to get on this thing, you don't really forget. Because if I were to run and jump and hop on, I promise you I'd fall. I promise. Okay? And I've seen people do it. Uh, they also have like a million followers on Instagram, and that's like their life. Okay? But if you wanted to learn how to do this, the best way to, to do it is to hold on to something as you hop on. And the only reason I say that is now that I know that, I don't fall when I'm getting on anymore. Now, the more I ride around, the more I hit bumps and eventually fall, and this one is like three sizes too small for me as well. However, once I learned that when I was in San Antonio, I became obsessed with these things because the two kids who brought theirs, theirs was actually adult size. And so once I learned it, I, they would leave it at their dad's office and I would sneak into their office and steal it and just go around church on a hoverboard just because I thought it was that cool. The idea of going somewhere without actually walking sounded really cool. And I fell a few times, but once you get it, you don't want to give it up, which is why I was really devastated when they decided to actually take the hoverboard back to their home because they were like, Mr. Casey, you can't ride it. You're using up our battery. And I'm like, I don't care. Give it to me because I loved it so much because th this... This, once you get it, it makes sense. Once you learn how to ride a bike, you don't think, okay, I got this, next, go to the next thing. You want to ride your bike everywhere because of how wonderful it is. Paul put it like this when he wants people to get it. He used a different analogy in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Do we have that up here? And Paul said this to the Corinthian church. He said, but we had this treasure in jars of clay 
to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paul is, is saying and, and trying to express to these Ephesians, if you understand who God is, and, and like when you get it, when that light bulb moment goes off, your life changes and you're willing to do the irrational at that point. It's kind of like when you're in love. Because when you're in love, and it doesn't even have to be the significant other, like the boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, doesn't have to be that. It can be a child. It can even just be a really good friend that you just care deeply about. When you love someone, you do a lot of stupid stuff on their account. Like when you think about it, it's, it's ridiculous. You're willing to do a number of dumb things. You are willing to stay up all night so that you do not have to hang up the phone from this person, even though you are like, you know, five minutes away from each other in terms of where you're at, but you don't want to hang up the phone. You're willing to drive for 9, 10, 11 hours to see this person for one hour and then drive 9, 10, 11 hours back. You're willing to hop on planes when it doesn't make sense to fly to that person. You're willing to eat foods that you're allergic to and will make you vomit if it means that that person is happy. And you'll look crazy. You'll look irrational. But the whole time you're thinking, you know, I'm in love and I don't care and I can't help it. Perhaps maybe that's what Jesus was trying to say about those who understand the kingdom of God. When in Matthew, he talks about this man who found a treasure in this empty, open, barren field. And he sold everything that he had and bought the field so that he had the treasure. When everyone would look and say, you just gave up everything for, for just some field, whereas that man who looks crazy knows but I have so much more than what I did have. And I think this might be what Paul is talking about with the Ephesian church and even with us. When you get it, when you understand and know God's power and God's love for you, you can't help but do crazy things. You can't help but do the irrational. You can't help but experience and believe the things where people say, are you crazy? You're an idiot. Why would you? And you're looking and thinking, do what you got to do. Think what you got to think. But I love God so much, I can't get this out of my head and out of my heart. Um, so as, as a part of this, when this occurs, what happens is uh, we tend to make rash decisions. We tend to make decisions that will lead us to go into a body of water and say, put me under because I want it to be like I'm dying because that's what Christ did for me and that's what he asked for me to do. And how blessed are we this morning that we actually have someone who has said, that's exactly what I want to do. Mr. Landon Gayhart was at Camp of the Hills and through the conversations that he had there, the experiences, uh, he decided that he's ready to give his life to Christ in baptism. And he's going to do that here this morning. Praise God, right? So that being said, um, I'm going to invite our, our praise team to come on out. I'm going to invite our prayer team to head to the back. Now, perhaps you've already gone down the baptism road. Perhaps you're at a place where you're thinking about it. 
Um, And this isn't just about baptism. This is about what it looks like for when you truly get it, when that light bulb really goes off about who God is. You know, we have a number of light bulbs, and perhaps that's why Paul talks about mystery so much, because that can go off again and again and again, because sometimes we fall in love with the same person all over again in a different way. And so perhaps you're someone who, uh, oftentimes when I talk about this, I'll talk about maybe you're going through a hard time in life. Maybe you've made some poor decisions that have resulted in this. Maybe you're someone who's actually doing pretty well in life right now. And you're sitting here thinking, I feel like there's a part of God that I could experience even deeper. And I'm just not. I feel like there's another level to it. We've had a number of conversations with the people in the back. And they're, they're led to ask questions that allow you and invite you to engage God in a deeper level than you currently are. And so perhaps that's you. Perhaps you're saying, is that it? Just baptism and then like be nice and go on a mission trip here and there? Like that, that's, oh, no, there's so much more. And so this morning I invite you, if you want to experience more love of God, if you want to lay your life before, if you're like, I want that light bulb, or maybe you got it this morning, feel free to head to the back as we stand and sing this next song. <laughs>